How did we end up here? This place is horrible. Smells like balls. We had it all. You were a movie star, remember? Who was this guy? He used to be Birdman. I like that poster. You wrote this adaptation? I did, yeah. And you're directing and starring in your I, adaptation. That's yeah. ambitious. Are you afraid people will say you're doing this play to battle the impression that you're a washed-up comic strip character? Absolutely not. That's why 20 years ago I said no to Birdman 4. Hold the man's law. You do hold the man's law. Now you're about to destroy what's left of your career. We should have done that reality show they offered us. Shut up. I got a chance to do something right. I got to take it. Let's go back one more time and show them what we're capable of. There you go, you motherfucker. Hey everybody, welcome to this very special You Have to Watch This podcast. I'm Alan. I'm Ryan. And I'm Devin. And today, joining us from the Victims and Villains podcast, we've got Captain Nostalgia. Josh, welcome to the show, Josh. What's up? <laughs> so... Uh, Josh is here to talk about one of his favorite movies, but before we get started, I wanted to give Josh an opportunity to talk a little bit about Victims and Villains and what you guys are doing over there on your show. So Victims and Villains is a unique podcasting experience, and uh, Alan is actually one of our writers. Um, So with that is Victims and Villains is an entertainment website, a podcast, and a nonprofit that marries pop culture and suicide prevention. So we create context that meets people at their passions. So their guards kind of come down a little bit. There's a level of comfortability, but it is delivered with the heart to engage and educate people on mental health awareness, how accessible the resources are if they are struggling and just to really create a safe, uh, safe spot and safe space for people that maybe considering suicide how long have you guys been around doing what what you're doing over there so we started about 2016 we started in the spring of 2016 okay and um that's about when we started as well yeah so yeah yeah so it's it's a it's a small (laughs) world that like we never crossed paths because because we lived so close together. We actually we actually did cross paths <laughs> once. <laughs> did at, we uh, at Free Comic Book Day at the Chambersburg Mall? Oh, wow. I kept I kept winning all of the trivia questions you were asking. That's true. <laughs> I that remember that. Yeah. It I got to the point where it got to the point where my wife was like, "Okay, you need to stop because you're embarrassing me." <laughs> <laughs> that's usually the way that it is when I go out with my wife somewhere and there's trivia that's comic related. She's always like, stop, please, for the yeah. love of God, stop. <laughs> but yeah, I've been writing for victims now for a few months. I've uh, gotten a few view- reviews out, been on a few episodes too. Uh, I was on the Tiger King episode. So yes. I know we didn't, we didn't really talk about Tiger King on this. So if you want to hear my thoughts on Tiger King, <laughs> You guys can head over to Victims and Villains to check that out. It was a great episode, by the way. I heard that one. Thank you. Oh, awesome. Thank you. Yeah, Tiger King got um, I. Tiger King was like one of those like random like spur of the moment episodes that we kind of weren't planning, but I my wife my wife and I on our six year anniversary this year we sat down and watched Tiger King from start to finish, and ended up just like one of those stories. If you guys haven't seen Tiger King yet, it is just one of those stories that just blows your brains out and 
then as you're looking at your brains, you're trying to comprehend the situation at hand. The best way I've heard Tiger King described is like a live action version of The Simpsons. (laughs) 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 So Um, true, though. I'm looking forward to our unnecessary follow-up podcast with Joel McHale for some reason. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So the reason reason Josh is here today, we asked Josh to pick a movie that he loves that not many people have seen. And he gave us a list. We looked at that list, and there was one on there that Devin and I had seen. But Ryan had not. Josh, tell us a little bit about the film you picked out. So I picked the basically the film that almost like revolutionized Michael Keaton's career. Um, And it is Birdman or as it's also known, Birdman or the unexpected virtue of ignorance. All right. So, Josh, when was the first time you saw Birdman? Did you see it in theaters or... I did see it in theaters, and so we're we're from relatively the, the same area. So you know that being in Scotland, Pennsylvania, it's there's not a whole lot of like smaller produced films that go up. Yeah, and so I actually talked to my best man, and I said, "Hey, I really want to see this movie." He's really into films, and so I showed him a trailer for it, and we found a theater that was playing it in camp hill so we we took a road trip up and we went to go see it and just absolutely amazed by just the the score for this film the like the deconstruction of like not only the superhero genre which was still in its infancy when this came out but also just the uh just the performances and the writing and just the way that the cam the the fluidity of the camera was just so astonishing to me that this was like kind of the first time that i'd ever seen a film of this magnitude so it really stayed with me uh for a while and it's a film that i think a lot of people have kind of forgotten about in more recent years Devin, how about you when was the first time you saw birdman so i saw this one on an airplane um on my way over to holland um and it's not an airplane movie i mean i loved it when i watched it but like Man, you do not get the same effect watching it on an airplane on, like, a, what, three-inch screen? Yeah. Like, it is not the same. So, like, I got so much more out of it this time. Yeah, when I went back and rewatched it this time on my my 43-inch TV, I was pausing it and looking at things in the background and making notes. Mm -hmm. Um, I feel like I rented this from the library as soon as it came out on Blu-ray and DVD. Uh, Because as much as I try to see as many best picture nominees before the Oscars, I only ever see like maybe one, if that. (laughs) Two, if it's something like comic booky, like uh, Joker or something. Um, So I saw this probably 2015, right when it after it came out on home video, um, and then revisit it for this. So Ryan, since this was your first time watching (laughs) the movie, yeah, what did you think of Birdman? I liked it. It wasn't. It, it was not what I was expecting. I'll put it to you that way. Um, okay. So, if for people who listen to the show, you know, a little while back there was a movie that I watched, and I did not realize that Michael Keaton was in it. And Alan likes to give me crap at the fact that Michael Keaton in a hat I couldn't recognize after talking about uh, after talking about how Superman's disguise was the dumbest thing ever, just being a pair of glasses. You know, you can't recognize him. Well, I couldn't recognize Michael Keaton in a hat, so. There's, there's that. Well, was it, was it homecoming? I was believe it, homecoming? it was homecoming. Re- because okay. 
it was at the very start when he has like the New York accent and the hat, and I just I didn't know that that was Michael Keaton until later in the film. Um, what? And the reason why is because one, I in my head until I saw that Spider-Man movie, um, to me Michael Keaton was always Beetlejuice, Batman, and in my head because I hadn't really seen a lot of like. Uh, like paparazzi pictures of him recently. That's how old he's always been in my head. So if I would have seen this around that same time, then maybe I would have recognized Michael Keaton a little bit earlier because I, because this is probably the first film that I've, well, that and the Spider-Man movie are the first movies that I've seen of him where he looks his age now. Um, but I mean, his performance was amazing. Um, there's a there 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 was a ton of stuff in the background that I caught, but I can't remember any of it at the moment. <laughs> um, but it, it, I enjoyed it. It was it was good. To summarize, all right. So Josh, <laughs> Josh, I'm going to let you lead the conversation where you want to. This is this is your pick, so you get to take oh. lead on this wherever you want to take the conversation. Feel free and man. All right, you... so <laughs> let's play. Let's start this out with a game of trivia. So, how many of you guys have uh, seen, I'm assuming you guys are all nerds like Alan and me, how many of you guys have seen The Incredible Hulk? Which one? Oh, Which one? <laughs> 2008. 2008. I've seen it. Yeah. So, do you know why Norton was not welcomed back for The Avengers in 2012? I heard he was really hard to work with. Is that why? That is one of the main reasons. So, like, the way that... I think that it's the perfect segue. Like, the way that Edward Norton is as uh, Mike... Uh, what's, his, what's his... It's Mike Shiner, right? Yeah. Yes. Okay, I thought so. So, like, the way that he is as Shiner, that's basically how he was on the set of The Incredible Hulk. Um, so, basically, <laughs> like, his... His contract stated that he got a writing credit actually on the film. And from my understanding, they didn't even actually end up using any of his material. But like he had basically the way that he wanted to approach the character was very similar to what um, Todd Phillips did with Joker. Uh, he really wanted a really grounded, very psychological approach to that character, and the studios were kind of just like, nah, like, <laughs> we're going to take this MCU route, we're going to try and, like, you know, preserve and, and kind of take this less comic book, a little bit more grittier take on the character than what Ang Lee did, <clears throat> because I feel like, say what you will about the Ang Lee movie, it's still a visually stunning film, and... um but yeah, so like the way that watch this is the first time that I've gone back and rewatched this movie and really have seen um with the knowledge of Norton's kind of behind the scenes drama. So that's kind of the relationship here and it's interesting the way that you kind of s- s- handle these characters uh of of Riggin kind of trying to leave the Birdman legacy behind. Um and, but I, I really just kind of wanted to see if you guys know anything about the Incredible Hulk uh, beforehand. Yeah. So um, I don't know. Yeah, like, I know. 
Go I ahead. know he was like trying to like write the script when he was working, and that, like that's yeah, just, just like, that rewriting his, on the spot. His first scene with Michael Keaton in this movie, like he's rewriting that scene that you see at the beginning around the table talking about what are you talking about with love, like. Um, and I was like, it clicked with me this this time through. It's like that's exactly what. Okay, so these guys are just playing themselves. Like he's playing Edward Norton, Michael Keaton is playing Michael Keaton. Like it's exaggerated versions of themselves, and I think that's what adds to their performances so much. I can't really say that uh, Emma Stone's a exaggerated version of herself, because as far as I know, she's never been to rehab. Uh, she kind of reminded uh, me of Lindsay Lohan a little bit, so I wouldn't be surprised if she was channeling some of that, because I got a lot of know, Lindsay Lohan vibes from her. Ooh, that's a good comparison. That, that is it. Yeah, I didn't pick up on that. Good, <laughs> good call. But like Naomi Watts, as far as I know, she's never been on Broadway. Oh. So... Um, no, but it feels like the these two front players in Norton and Keaton, they feel like they are speaking. They're there, so the film as a, as a whole is de, is a deconstruction of the superhero genre, and it is basically kind of these two guys that had that experience and coming out of it. Uh, I, now, it, my own personal experience for me with Michael Keaton is Michael Keaton growing up was Batman. Like Batman was what put him on the map. He was, you know, I don't really consider Beetlejuice because Beetlejuice feels more like an ensemble film than it does like a Keaton film. Keaton film, the really like the first time you ever experience that is in Batman and Batman Returns. And then it just kind of felt like once he stepped away from that franchise, he kind of lost his relevancy again for years, like almost two decades to me, at least uh, other guys was really the first time that I felt like I had seen him in a movie and like seriously had remembered him as a actor. Him showing up in other guys is such a wonderful role for him because it, it's small, but he has the best jokes of that whole movie where he's just quoting. No T yeah, yeah. He's just quoting <laughs> TLC the whole time. And he's like, I don't know what you're talking about. Like, <laughs> uh, for me, my, like Michael, my introduction to Michael Keaton was actually the movie multiplicity. That's a good one. Where, too. He, where he clones himself. Oh, I don't know that one. Oh, I've got the poster for it in the corner. It's going up on the wall here. And then good. his clones clone themselves, and then they make yeah. a degree. And then they make the is that this a movie? A, <laughs> yes, a oh. copy of a copy does not turn out well. No, it does and, not. <laughs> and um, yeah, it's a little bit um, it's a little bit like Tropic Thunder if you look at it through in a certain lens. Weird. Uh, yes, but so that was my. But then I knew him as Batman as well. But my Batman growing up was Val Kilmer. Like the first Batman movie I remember is Batman Forever. I got the Batman Forever memorabilia on the wall. Um, See, mine's over here with my DVD yeah. collection. <laughs> <laughs> um, I actually have one of the the Batman Forever McDonald's cups holding all my pens. That's right now. so cool. Nice. Um, so it, it was really interesting to hear him talk about like doing three, even though he didn't do three. Like, like this movie acknowledges that he was. Birdman, Batman, and he did three films. They're just ignoring that he didn't do the Batman Forever. And then, like, there's that whole scene where he's talking about him and George Clooney being on the plane. I was like, like that is such a perfect analogy. Like, if if I go down with George Clooney, they're gonna remember George Clooney. Yeah. Um. But yeah. The... yeah. Uh, sorry. Go ahead. 
I don't, I was just the, the uh, Batman and Batman Forever were my like links to him as a kid growing Batman, up. Batman Returns. Batman and Batman Returns. Yeah. yeah. Those two movies. Um, th- those were my, because he's forever my Batman. Like, that's just, that's yeah. who he is for me. And then it was Multiplicity. And I can't really remember him at anything else up until Spider-Man and, <laughs> and Birdman. Well, I, think, I think I'm the same way minus Multiplicity. Like, I never really got into Beetlejuice and only knew Batman. So, like, this film was so perfect for me. Because I'm like, oh, it's Batman playing something called Birdman. Great. Because <laughs> in a way, like, it, for this film, Keaton in this film, he feels almost like it's almost as if it's his story and Riggins kind of merged together because they're both fighting for this comeback. And this put him on the map in a huge way. Uh, I think he was nominated for an Oscar for this film. And then the next year as well with spotlight, he was also nominated for either best actor, best supporting actor, uh, which is another incredible performance. And then of course, homecoming came and, uh, you know, now he's doing the MCU as, as, uh, the, the, Vulture. Bird Vulture. Man. Yeah. Bird, Birdman. You <laughs> Bird know, Marvel Birdman. Yeah. Um, it's, a, it's a weird Venn diagram because you go from Batman to Birdman to Vulture. Right. And like Birdman's like right in the middle of the two of them. I, you know what? I'm just a little bit disappointed that they didn't go the corny route and just have his, like, uh, the superhero he played be Man Bat. And then throughout, <laughs> and then at some, and then, and then, at some point, somebody acts, acts, accidentally says Batman, and then somebody turns and says, Batman? That just sounds wrong. It's Man-Bat. You know, that, <laughs> that type of thing. That would have been great for me personally. Just, you know, I'm not sure how anybody else would have liked that, but I would have loved the, the, it. The problem with that is you're still running into DC uh, no, 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 I know. copyright I, issues. Exactly. With, uh, and that's why with, I know that With Man-Bat being a villain, so. Yeah, um, I know. But I'm just I feel like, like they got... I feel like they got real close to the like MCU copyright though, because they showed Robert Downey Jr. on TV, and he was like, "Ah, oh, that metal man," and I was like, "Wow, that's close." Well, they, I mean, they, they name drop the Avengers. Yeah, that's right, they yeah. do. And, and they also have that scene at the end where the orchestra is dancing on the screen, and you have the Spider-Man dancing, and then the weird. Iron Man suit fighting Bumblebee. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. right. I was about to mention that. <laughs> so the most tragic thing about Michael Keaton being nominated for an Oscar for this is what was the Oscars themselves? Because they announced the winner and you just see Michael Keaton like go to get up and then just tuck a speech back in his pocket. Like he was all ready to win. Oh, no. It, like on watching it live, I was like, oh, my God, he thought he was going to get it. Like I wanted him to get it. And I felt so bad in that moment. Like, I'll have to send you guys the video of it. What was he uh, up against that year? Yeah. Uh, let me look. Uh, give me a minute. 20, I'd look, but Alan's faster at this type of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> the, the magic of having three screens. It's mm-hmm. a lot of screens. Dang. Life of videographers. Yes. <laughs> uh, he lost to Eddie Redmayne in the theory of everything. All right, I got to give him that cuz that performance right. is, is right? incredible. Is Eddie Redmayne uh, good in that? All I know that he does is whispers in everything. So, that is the only movie I've ever actually seen Eddie Redmayne okay. in and been impressed. I've seen him in other things and I'm just like you were Stephen Hawking like 
What are you Do doing? Good stuff. Yeah. The the other nominees that year were Steve Carell and Foxcatcher, Bradley Cooper and American Sniper, Benedict Cumberbatch in the Intimidation Game, and then Birdman. So that was an okay year. Yeah. It seems like it was just okay. Mm-hmm. The one the one thing I remember from that Oscars is it was Neil Patrick Harris hosting, and when J.K. Simmons won for Whiplash. He just comes out and says, he won an Oscar. Bum, ba, dum, bum, 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 bum. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I like that. <laughs> so every time I see J.K. Simmons in anything, like Spider-Man, uh, I just that always pops in my head. Um, one thing that uh, this movie has in common with Whiplash, which I don't know if you guys have seen. No. Have oh, any Whiplash of you seen Whiplash? Incredible. I haven't seen I want to so bad, though. We're, I think we're going to do that, and we're going to get uh, another special guest, which we've talked about, Devin. I can't wait. Um one thing that this movie has in common with Whiplash is the soundtrack. Like the opening of this movie is just drums and that's like, it's so intense and gets you, gets the tension going. And just like in Whiplash, like it's just all drums the whole time. Like that whole, um, Times Square sequence, it's, you just got those drums going and it's, it's fantastic. Well, from the gate right out uh, with the imagery that accompanies the soundtrack and the score with the drums, you have this symbolization of rebirth with the comet coming to the earth and the, I want to say it was like a squid like character. I want to say it was like a jellyfish. Yeah. Yeah. So you, so you have that coming into it. So it's like this like signaling of rebirth, but it also at the same time, it, you're having Riggins' story is basically of reinventing himself. And so the imagery that, man, I'm going to butcher this guy's name. Uh, Andrelio. Andre, Han, Andre Hondo Inarito. Yeah. I'll buy it. Inarito. Yeah. I'm just going to say that because yeah. it's easier to say. Uh, I am terrible with names, but he does a really good job at being used the use of camera angles and just like purposefully like giving those images Um, and to kind of go back to that sequence we were talking about with the the orchestra and Spider-Man and Iron Man and just it's this deconstruction of popular culture because uh, in a way when you look at this movie, it's basically come it's basically a commentary on how we consume media right so you know we have gone are the days of you know theater productions and you know these more sophisticated art forms whereas now we are we're focused on larger than life productions and larger than life uh stories and these blockbusters and he does a really good job at demonstrating and conveying that through just these random imageries loaded down with that amazing score. Right. Cause I mean, even the movie itself does that whole larger than life aspect. This is probably the first movie I've ever seen. That's kind of a dark satire that uses magical realism. I think the last one we did on the podcast that focuses on it is like La La Land. Like, and these aren't comparable movies. Like the movie itself says, okay, we could have told this very grounded, very gritty <clears throat> tale but we're going to throw in a bunch of magical realism to have that dichotomy between, you know, you're not a real actor, you're a movie star, 
or you're a celebrity. Like to show that dichotomy. There's the real acting and the real grounded part, and then this over the top part. And I love that. Like the movie itself promotes its own themes everywhere. Mm-hmm. And they both have and they both have Emma Stone. And they both have Emma Stone. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe she's the reason why they can do that. She's just she, magical realism. Exactly. She gives that power. In everything she's in, even the even uh, Easy A, everything. Easy A is good. I like Easy A. Never seen Easy it. A. Underwhelmingly. Uh, let me let me let me rephrase that. It is an underappreciated classic. It is. It is. It Isn't is. the premise of that movie that Emma Stone can't get a guy, so she pretends for guys that can't get girls? Is that the premise Devin, of the movie? Devin. 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 I already know where you're going. You're gonna go. You're gonna go into Devin. You know, cynic mode. You know it. Yes. Yes. No. It's different. Okay. Okay. You've got the premise, as mm-hmm. in somebody says that in a pitch meeting, and then mm-hmm. they spent five months working on the script and the storyline. Okay. So there's work put into it. It's not. Don't be cynical. Stop. Stop it. <laughs> And just watch it. <laughs> okay. I mean, hey, I was very wrong about, um, oh, New Girl. Most, most of the movies we've had you watch. Yeah, most, actually most of them. I was wrong about like RoboCop. I was wrong about, yeah, all of them actually. Everything. Yeah. Everything. Most, Everything. most things. Uh, yeah. My, my, my biggest disappointment is I don't get to turn you on Birdman right now. Like you, you liked it. So it's not. Like, oh I, yeah. Like, I'm on this board. Is why it, this is why you're wrong. So. <laughs> Well, the movie itself is cynical, like, and I think that just yeah. calls to my, like, my blackened heart. So, one thing that I definitely picked up, like, Alan, you talked about the music, and Devin, you talked about your your aspect of it. Mine, I love the long shots. Like, yeah. they almost oh, yeah. made this movie one shot. Almost. And I that, mean, to is. me, it I loved. It, to me, though, as soon as you cut and go to something, like, to me, that negates it being a completely one long shot but they did a good job stringing all of that together they they have that flow for a long period of time and then you got to break away to other portions where he's no longer either in the theater itself or like when he wakes up after in the end with like where he's in the hospital because he's shot his nose off you know that's kind of that basically breaks that scene Mm -hmm. but then you have like other transitions where you have like conversations that are taking place and then you're panning your way throughout the backstage area to go meet another character in the cast and that's what i'm talking about where they spend a lot of the time in the film keeping it to one shot or making it seamless if it's not to make it look like it's one shot and i and i love that fact uh i loved that uh style choice especially when you're dealing with the backstage area of these old new york stage play buildings like those hallways are thin and those rooms are jammed together so the the style pick of having to be like one long shot going down the hallways worked because if it was a normally cut film it it would have been so claustrophobic it would have been horrible (laughs) I, I was looking up some technical aspects of this movie. They shot this in a month. Wow. What? <clears throat> yeah. That's insane. I guess th- I guess they run out the theater for a month and had it. So like, I don't know. Who, I don't know who their DP was, but I'm glad they won the Oscar. <laughs> uh, 
Actually, I have it here in my notes. Uh, they they won for cinematography. Good. They deserved um, it. Emmanuel Lebeski. Lebeski. I'm butchering his name. Yeah. So. I mean, uh, that's, yeah, this that's movie, better than how I would have said yeah. it, probably. So this movie, <laughs> this movie won. Uh, even though Michael Keaton didn't win for best best actor, it did win for picture of the year. Uh, best achievement in directing, best writing of original screenplay, and achievement in cinematography. Which I mean, for uh, to the extent of that, it is doing with its screenplay. It is well deserved of that. Like, yeah, it and best picture too. I would even argue. I'm not sure who it was up against, but this is a incredible piece of of, of cinema and just the cast and just the way that it flows is so beautiful. Well, it's like you said earlier, it has this like right off the bat, this frenetic energy, even in the conversations that the people have. And it just matches that like jazz drum background tone in everything. And it's so uh, it's just so fun to watch. So the other best picture nominees that year mm-hmm. were American Sniper. OK. Boyhood. Grand Budapest Hotel. Mm-hmm. The Imitation Game. Selma. The Theory of Everything and Whiplash. Oh, man. I've- such a good year. It's a pretty stacked year. I've yeah. seen so few of those. Uh, well, if you would like to, and you have Amazon Prime or Vudu, I mean, I uh-huh. guess you don't have to have Vudu. Vudu is actually streaming Selma for the entire month of June for free. Oh, I love that. Um, so go check that out, and uh, that is an incredible piece of film as well. And then uh, Boyhood and Whiplash were, were some of my favorite movies from that year as well. Oh, wow. I still have not seen Boyhood. Me neither. Boyhood um, is a film that you guys should definitely do because, uh, Alan, I feel like as a like a, as a videographer, you would get a lot of appreciation out of the experimental nature of that. Film, oh, yeah. The way that it's shot. And it actually has a cohesive narrative that streamlines all the way through. Plus, not to mention all of the nostalgia throwbacks from when we were growing up. Aww. Yeah. Yeah, because I, I don't know if you guys know about Boyhood, but they shot it over, what is it, t- 10 years? It's 12 years and 12 years. one week a year. Wow. So it's the same actors over the this period of time. So that you actually see this boy grow up. Yeah, That's really cool. I didn't know that. Yeah. I wonder how you would keep – that seems tough, like how you'd keep like, the plot consistent throughout all of that. Like He's doing another one that is a diff- – it's a different concept, but it's taking place over years as well. He's working on that now. So we'll see that in probably another 10 or 15 years. We were <laughs> talking about Selma before and mm-hmm. yes, and it reminded me of something. Amazon prime. If anybody has that, um, yeah. or even not, I'm not entirely sure. They have certain movies this month that, that was it. You can rent for free and Selma's one of them. Selma, mm-hmm. just mercy, which nice. if you haven't seen just mercy, I high, I highly recommend it. It is amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, if you go into Amazon Prime, there's a bunch of movies. They all kind of follow the same theme, um, mm-hmm. and they're all free to rent this month. All of the movie studios pulled back their renting fees. That's awesome. I so, love that. Also, as of this recording today, the Hate You Give, which is another um, film that is absolutely incredible, is also worth uh, streaming. Um, really trying to bring attention to the uh, just racial injustice that is clearly a, a much needed conversation that's happening. And, you know, we're clearly podcasting about movies. And so what better medium to get that conversation started than movies? 
Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, because definitely. So yeah. Oh, are you guys are you guys still following the fly lead? Uh, no. We're I'm just sorry. Kinda, yeah. I, I'm hearing just something app. next door. Like my neighbors are yelling, and I don't know what's going on. Oh okay. no! Oh. So this yeah. happens occasionally. Occasionally, I have questions. Occasionally, I have to call the cops. Go go ahead and ask a question. Yeah. So uh, all right. So this film dropped in 2014. This was years before we had something like Joker. So my my question and. It, it, the question that I took during my notes came from the scene where Riggin is meeting with all of the reporters and mm-hmm. the Asian guy gets really excited that there was almost a Birdman three or Birdman four because Birdman three is hanging in his uh, posters hanging in his dressing room. But can comic book movies be considered to be serious pieces of art in the cinema? In the cinema medium, I think so. Wow. I think um, even before Joker, if you look at something like Watchmen, like that's a very different take on the superhero genre than what anything you had before that. Because up until that point, it was like Ben Affleck as Daredevil, and here's Jessica Alba in the Fantastic Four. But like Watchmen took a serious tone with it, and uh, I don't think Zack Snyder gets a lot of credit for that film he gets a lot of credit for the Snyder cut and a lot of attention for that right now. But I think Watchmen, the film is a very good adaptation and a serious take on a superhero film. And even Nolan, uh, which I think the dark Knight was a year before that. Like the, the bat, the Nolan Batman movies are a more serious take on this genre that I consider like high quality cinema. I think the answer is tough. I, I agree with Alan a lot because I love The Watchmen. I think it's very artistic in what it does. And I would hold it up as probably one of the best superhero movies that I've seen in a while. But I think as I think as like a, a whole almost, I don't know if it w- a superhero movie would ever be as universally accepted as like art. Because I think there's this air that some people give them of just cheapness or just like, well, it's a superhero movie. You know what you're going to get. I'm not going to see it. And it any superhero movie already has that working against it, which I really hate because I like the genre a lot, but I don't know. I don't know what would, what it would take because this one was almost a hard sell to people that I was telling about. I was like, Oh, I'm going to watch Birdman. They go, Oh, a superhero movie. And I go, no, it's not even, I mean, it's barely about a superhero. It's about, you know, an actor. And they're like, Oh, well then I'd like to watch that then. And like, see that it's about the fallout of an actor who played a superhero. Right. (laughs) Yeah, that's a tricky. That's a tricky thing with the the world of superhero movies right now. Like I remember, I had a conversation with somebody last year. I was like, "Oh yeah, I went to the movies this weekend and saw Rocket Man." She's like, "Oh, I don't like superhero movies." I'm like, "No, it's it's the Elton John biopic." <laughs> oh. He is a superhero. You stop that. So, I, I, when it comes to me, like I'm not like I, I'm a geek. I'm a nerd. As big as these other two guys are, but. When it comes to the whole superhero genre thing, I'm not that big of into it as I think everybody else recording at the moment. <laughs> um, but when when it comes to me, I would say that like the first comic book movie to do something gets more appreciation than the next one to pull off the same thing. 
Uh, as an example, Iron Man. For a lot of people, Iron Man is their favorite Marvel movie still to this day because it was the first one of that string of films. And then you've got the original Batman movie with Michael Keaton. And then you've got, um, like you said, Joker, because it was the first, like, you know, superhero, quote unquote, movie to do what it did. And then you got The Watchmen, which was the first major film to do what, you know, what what it did. So, like, you hear a lot of people talk about The Watchmen who aren't really superhero fans and not a lot of people talking about The Boys in shows right. like that. So I feel like. I feel like it's whatever superhero movie is the first one to break some glass is the one that gets the credit for being an art form. And then you've got the ones that roll in after it are the ones where it's just, ah, those are coming off an assembly line. Because I'm not going to lie, for a long time when it came to the Marvel films, and Alan can attest to this because I've said it a few times, like in phase, like in in, in the later half of phase one and phase two of the Marvel films, I just felt like they were coming off assembly lines. Like, I really didn't see them as, like, their own individual thing. But, and to Marvel's credit, yeah. to Marvel's credit, they've started to bring in different Ex- filmmakers yes. to, to change things up. Yeah. You get Taika Waititi doing Thor and uh, Ryan Coogler doing Black Panther. Changing up this – there is a formula to them, yeah. but bringing in these different dynamics and styles to expand on that. Like, yes, it – they're getting away from origin stories, but you still get those elements of the big, the big battle at the end. And, or you get something like Dr. Strange where they flip it on its head, like just doing something different with it. Yeah. I think that's where Marvel's going. And like DC's trying to do that with their, their main (laughs) universe, like Aquaman and Shazam. And they're getting there. Yeah. Um, Cause they're definitely leaps and bounds ahead of where they were with Green Lantern. So, yeah. yeah, So, I mean, like, that's my take on the whole question of, like, can superhero movies be art? And it's like, to me, well, it's the ones that break some glass, per se, that that can, for me, get that tagline. And I, I think comic book movies as a whole get this ugly representation that, to your credit, that, you know... there is a there is a fatigue that's starting to take place but also at the same time is that much like comic books comic book movies can take various forms and i think that not all of the ones that are coming out of marvel or dc yes to your point ryan i feel like there are a lot of them that feel like they're they're coming off the assembly line they feel predictable like i've seen this before and then you get those great anomalies like the dark knight and watchmen and i'll even throw one out here that you guys really didn't didn't mention but also kind of came out uh, around the time of i want to say it was like back when we were still figuring it out but it would be sin city sin city stylistically alone is a beautiful noir throwback and when you look at how that film was made and just the risky visionaries that robert rodriguez was doing i mean it is a revolutionary time i'm not a huge fan of the film but i will also say 300 the way that that is shot from snyder is also it's a comic book but it, it, the richness and the cinematography 
make that a very art house approach to the genre. So, I, I, and I fully agree d- with that. I 100% like, I'm right behind that because I remember when 300 was coming out, uh, my mom dragged me to Barnes and Nobles and I went into the comic book section and I found, because I, I, I knew people were saying it was based off a comic book. So it was Barnes and Nobles. So I'm like, oh, I wonder if they have it. And I found it and I was looking through it and I'm like, oh, this is a really cool story. And, and then I kind of like paused and I started looking at the pictures and I'm like, they're all going to wear loincloths. They're all going to wear because <laughs> because because in the comic book they're not in the comic oh my inter- my introduction to 300 was the uh, 1950s version that they made of the 300 Spartans that I watched in seventh grade history class I think I watched that too now that you say it oh no yeah I'm so happy I went to a different school district <laughs> one thing that one thing that I've noticed about all these films that we're talking about whether it's anything Zack Snyder's done or Sin City with Robert Rodriguez behind all these films is a visionary director. And I think Mm -hmm. that's important to like, even with a Joker, Todd Phillips had a vision that he wanted to tell. And it's way different than anything he did with the hangover movies um, or old school. Like it's a film that he set out to make different from anything else he's done. And I think that's important. If you, if you want a superhero film to be, considered art you need that visionary behind it whether it's nolan snyder i'll throw another name out there matthew vaughn who did Mm. kick-ass the secret service uh uh uh, kingsman um x-men first class which i think is probably still my favorite x-men film i love Um, all of those yeah so i think with if you have that visionary director behind the story that's when the movie can be are easier to be considered art because they, they can express their vision, which is part of the reason I'm excited for the Snyder cut. Yeah. The Snyder cut is going to be amazing. Put that aside. Um, no, I, I totally agree with everything you're, you're talking about. Like it truly does take a director with vision and the right team, the right cinematographer, the right script, the right actors that can really bring that to life. And I think when you talk about Watchmen, for example, there's a richness that Snyder's uh, cinematographer was really able to take Dave Gibbons' art and really bring it to life. And that's such a daunting task already, but to really see that come to life, it creates a unique visual experience for the viewer. And on top of that, you also have a really good cast for the most part that is bringing these people to life. Uh, You know, I remember when they announced that they were going to be doing a Watchmen HBO series, which in and of itself, you guys haven't seen it. It is, it is the highest art form that a comic book property can ever reach. Um, Alan, I know you, you have HBO Go so or HBO oh, yeah. Max stuff. So you haven't watched it? Oh, I, I oh, watched it so when it was good. on. Uh, so anything with Damon Lindelof, I am all on, on board for. Leftovers Lost, like Damon Lindelof's name on it, just get it, give it to me. <laughs> like, and it, but even there, you have Damon Lindelof who has this vision of yep. the story that he wants to tell. And even though he's not, he may he. I've heard interviews where he says, "I may not be the best person to tell this story, but I'm going to get the people who." are the right people to tell this story to help me tell this. So even when it's beyond his grasp, he knows to bring in people who can help him. 
Yeah, and that's what made that series so special was was having those right people and but I remember there was a controversy about when these whispers were starting to form saying that they were going to do it and they were like, Oh well no one can ever replace Jackie Earl Haley as Rorschach because of how good of a job he did. And that's the same way that, you know, Logan's another great film of comic book medium that could be considered art. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's this very emotionally driven Wolverine story that, you know, felt like we had seen Hugh Jackman go from the best and the worst and the unspeakable abomination that is Wolverine Origins. Oh. I find that movie entertaining. I don't care what anybody says. I have no problem watching that movie. No problem. It's just fine. <laughs> it's, it, it's, I'm sorry, but seeing him go through and what they, now granted the whole thing with Sabretooth and what doesn't matter. Him in the U.S. Army going through all of our country's greatest battles and being on the front lines with bone claws. I love that sequence of origins. I really do. Yeah, I'll give you that. And there's other parts in that movie on their own that are really good. And then there's other ones where they mention how he's Canadian and he drives off and, you know, that whole thing. But anyway, I mean, it's, yeah, it's there. (laughs) Bring it it back to Birdman. Oh, right. (laughs) Um, What? Well, no, because we're talking about these visionary directors, and I think it's important that we talk about Michael Keaton and his tenure as Batman. He did not come back for Batman Forever. He was set to until Tim Burton was replaced because Batman Returns was such a darker tone film. Warner Brothers was scared that they were going to scare off the parents of the kids who were going to see Batman because they were terrified of Danny DeVito's penguin and like killing the kids in the movie. Like that's the whole plot. He ate a uh, nose for God's sake. Yeah. I mean, but I could mean, be, could be worse. No blood could be gushing from my nose. <laughs> but, <I> mean, <laughs> yeah. At the same time though, like that's what made the Tim Burton Batman movies and the Mike, uh, and I was having Michael Keaton in there was Batman returns and that grittiness to it. Like that's yeah. what makes that movie. Yeah. But you have this actor who, has been working with this director who has this vision for this gothic Gotham. Oh yeah. Um, and as soon as that goes away and it becomes a little bit, uh, more cartoony and nipples on the bat suit, <laughs> it, he stepped away and rightfully so. Um, and then you brought, they brought in Val Kilmer mm-hmm. who only did one film, but, and stepped away because they wanted to do, uh, according to him, I'm reading his autobiography right now. They wanted to do the next one back to they want to do the next few back to back and he was already committed to other projects. So they brought in George Clooney. So like getting Keaton away Keaton and Tim Burton away from the vision, original vision that they had for those films, I think really plays into this character too in Birdman, because you have him known for this one thing that he did for a few films, but everyone identifies him. Like they see him at a bar, like, oh my god, you're Birdman. Like and it's 20, 30 years later, like that, that's got to take a toll on an actor. I don't care who you are, (laughs) whether you're a kid from a sitcom in the sixties or superhero movie from the eighties, like being known for that one thing and no one being able to separate your work for any, from anything else has got to take its toll. 
Well, yeah, look at Adam West, who played Batman in 1966, the series and the movies, and he he got typecast for a long time after his tenure as Batman, and he absolutely loathed it and actually wouldn't do anything until the Batman 89 movie. There was a resurgence in popularity for Batman, and it could have even been around the time that you were experiencing this like boom in Batman comics with Dark Knight Returns and Batman Year One. I mean, they were darker tales, but Batman was on the front lines once again of conversation for the uh, for the mainstream audience. He kind of like returned to his roots almost to say, and he basically had uh, you know so he really embraced it you know he started doing conventions again but it did it took its toll on him as an actor and as a person and Keaton does a really good job at conveying that point uh, throughout the course of this is that you know he doesn't this play for him isn't just a play it is a complete metamorphosis a complete reinvention I think the one of the things that I had to pause and rewind for there is in the very first scene when he's in his dressing room, there's a note on his mirror that I think sums up what we're talking about perfectly. It the note says, A thing is a thing, not what is said of that thing. Mm-hmm. Yep. Devin, did you pick that I up did, when you were watching it on the plane? Not on the plane. I picked it up this time. <laughs> I was too busy going, Wow, he's floating. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, I, I think that, that like, I think that's pretty much what we're talking about. Like, yeah. it's you're Batman, but you were Batman once, but you're not like people can say, "Oh, yeah, Batman was was crap compared to so and so." Like, no, it it you were you were that. You can move on now. Like it, you're. Does that make sense? It does. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, okay. it seems like it's almost the central thesis of the movie for at least some of the main characters. They're yeah, not right. what's said of them. They are who they are, and they're trying to show that. Well, and the whole time he's stressing what the reviews for this play is going to be because he has so much writing on it. And at the core of it, it's not what is said at the end of it. It's what he's doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And actually, to kind of build upon that, if you don't mind, I actually uh, went through and actually copy and pasted this um <clears throat> The, the Sam's monologue throughout the course of this because I, I feel like it's very profound and just really sums up his entire arc. And so uh, she basically says, mean something to who? You had a career before the third comic book movie, before people began to forget who was inside the bird suit. You're doing a play based on a book that was written 60 years ago for a thousand rich old white people whose only real concern is going to be where they go to take their, have their cake and coffee when this is over. Nobody gives a shit about you. And let's face it, dad, it's not for the sake of art. It's because you just want to feel relevant again. Well, there's a whole world of people where there's a whole world out there where people fight to be relevant every day. And you act like it doesn't even exist Things are happening in a place that you will willingly that you willingly ignore 
a place that is almost that has already forgotten you. I mean, who are you? You hate bloggers. You make fun of Twitter. You don't even have a Facebook page. You're the one who doesn't exist. You're doing you're doing this because you're scared to death, like the rest of us, that you don't matter. And you know what? You're right. You don't. It is not important. You're not important. Get used to it. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot to unpack in that speech. <laughs> and I think Emma, Emma Stone does a great job with it. But I, I think part of what she's getting at is, like, he's looking for this all, all this attention, which he could be getting on Twitter if he really wanted to. Like, people will see, like, oh, hey, he's on Twitter. I'll follow him. I liked him in that Birdman movie. and But he's not using that outlet that he has to connect with people. He thinks it's a very old school approach. Like, oh, I need to do theater to get back to my roots. And... There's this a, will sorry. give me attention. Yeah, it, there's kind of a connection to a movie that we did before, Chef, where mm-hmm. you've got the main character is completely against social media and doesn't really realize the benefit it can give him, and then it takes his son, like, tweeting out their location, using Vine, to, like, for him to wake up and be like, oh, I could use this to help. And it's like I'm, Michael I'm Keaton, fine. Oh, yeah. you know, and there's one of those things where it's like Michael Keaton's character just he doesn't get it because he, he he doesn't like it. And I think you can kind of look at both those characters and say it's kind of an age thing, which isn't bad. It's just, you know, you find that more often than not in people who are older. It's either an age thing or it's that Michael Keaton's character is making his own reality based on what he how he thinks this this whole thing should work. And that speech is Emma Stone waking him up, saying, yeah, yeah saying, look, well, your, yeah. your world isn't the world. Look at how it is. Yes. And what I, what I meant by an age thing is the fact mm-hmm. that when you're not when you're not using that technology, when you don't know it's available, when you don't know it's there, that's when mm-hmm. you make fun of the bloggers and you make fun of the people who do it because you're just not exposed to it and you don't know. It's you not a bad it. thing. I'm not saying that it's, you know, everybody over the age of 50 is like these guys. No, they're not. Um, I'm just saying that they're just not exposed to it. And that's sure. why it was such a, you know, like he could be doing this. And if he did, it might wipe away the reason for the movie. Like, this movie could be really short if his daughter just comes in on the first scene and hands him a phone on Twitter. (laughs) I mean... (laughs) All right, so I did have a question for you guys, because I found me wrestling with this almost all day, right? And I I looked stuff up, and I tried to do my research, and I didn't find an answer to it that I liked, and I want to hear what you guys think. Is Michael Keaton, do you guys believe he's schizophrenic and that Birdman is a manifestation of his hallucinations? Because if you look scientifically, they start as auditory hallucinations, which he does, then they turn into visual hallucinations. Or is it just a that magical realism in the film and it's trying to put you in the mindset of a character without him turning to the camera and going, now I'm sad? I think... Can it be a... Can it be a bit of both? Totally. That's, yeah. That's how I take it. Yeah. Yeah. Josh? Yeah, I agree. I think it's a bit of both. And I think it also kind of comes back into the way that it, I can't pronounce the guy's name. In, 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 in your Ritu. In your Ritu. Thank you. The way that he deconstructs the, the comic book movies, because Marvel 
had just hit a billion dollars. The Dark Knight had just hit a billion dollars. Uh, nothing but like six years before. So like this, for, like this genre of film was really starting to was really starting to pick up and articulate and like start to shape the uh, the cinematic climate for how we experience movies and television shows now. And to me, it, it kind of, you know, what about the people that were there in the beginning, like Keaton, like Riggin, you know, how does something like that take its toll on how you view yourself, mm-hmm. right? Because if so many people are seeing you in that light, surely there's got to be a piece of you that acknowledges that a bit of that character came off of you. So if Birdman has a really tragic backstory, maybe there's a piece of his methodology towards getting into the character that never really escaped him. Hmm. Isn't that kind of what happened with Johnny Depp and the whole Jack Sparrow thing where he just couldn't get rid of the character or like aspects of it? I mean, or was that a myth? Like I, you get a lot of myths about that. Like even with Heath Ledger, Oh, the, yeah. There was a when oh, he yeah. died, a lot of people were like, "Oh yeah, he couldn't shake the character of the Joker, and so he was on all these drugs." And I'm sure there was probably an element of truth to that. Like, he he was a method actor, so he was the Joker when he was on set. Um, but I I wasn't there in his last moment, so we can't really say what what actually led to that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that gets tossed around a lot when you have method actors and like, how far do you take it? Mm-hmm. Do you take it too far afterwards or, or well, there's that great documentary with Jim Carrey about Andy Kaufman, not to oh, keep bringing Jim and it up. Andy. Oh, it's oh, yeah. so good. So good. <laughs> it's so good. And then it's also like, yeah, we're, we're just kind of messing with you too. Like you don't know. Right. Exactly. It's, it's the yeah. most Andy Kaufman thing that he could do mm-hmm. as Andy Kaufman. Yeah. Uh, That's very true. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. Um, trying to think if there's any looking at look, I'm looking over my notes. Anybody else got anything? Okay, so this is this is probably a very basic question, but I do want to know what did you guys think of the end? So, I mean, obviously in the end, he assumingly jumps out the window, and then Emma Stone's character looks down, and then looks up. And like I had read, I'd read about this part in some places where like, that's proof that his psychic powers were true the whole time and that he was actually flying. And that's not at all how I took it. But again, cynic over here. I was like, yeah, he definitely jumped in. I'm curious. How did you take it then? I took it as he jumped. He definitely jumped. She saw that he did. She was appalled. And then just for that last split second, you Emma Stone had that last glimmer of like this this was my dad. Like my dad was Birdman. Look at him doing something real. Look at him flying, basically. And basically you could have cut the movie before she looks up. That was real life. Looking up was like that last bit of magical realism. Josh, how about you? There was a there was a tension that you see right from the Skype call and their first interaction in the beginning and every interaction that they basically have throughout the course of it. Like I'm pretty sure that I would even theorize that Sam and Shiner, that they end up ultimately sleeping together simply to kind of get a rise 
out of Riggin. Mm. And to me, I would I would ultimately say that he does kill himself. I would yeah. say that that is the ultimate ending for that character. And the reason that she is smiling is because she's finally kind of free from him. Oh. Um, you know, I, and I think that, you know, there's this, like, peace and she's a little bit more twisted than we're kind of led on to believe because she, for as much as, for as little as she's kind of given in this movie, I mean, she is a very much a background player. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, he does a really good job at creating these relationships, but she is basically a background character when you really boil down to it. And I think for her, that smile is not that she's seeing her dad fly off, but that she Mm -hmm. is actually, free from a man that she ultimately hated wow i like that that's that's kind of where i was looking at it this time through too until i started reading stuff i was like oh i like that take um ryan how about you i'm kind of torn on it uh there's a part of me that wants to say that's the whole like magical realism thing where like he was on the ledge um and he jumped and flew and it's the whole magical realism. She comes over, can't see his body on the ground, looks up and there he is flying. Um, but I think he might have just walked out of the room because remember, there's that part of the movie where he jumps off the building and flies through the city and lands and walks into the theater. And then the cabbie that he actually took the cab in is yelling for him because he didn't pay him. So what I'm thinking is that he went to the ledge, he went to the window, tried to open it. I've been a patient in enough hospitals to know that hospital windows only only open a half an inch. Oh, wow. So if they were going for realism, he would have had to break that window to fall out of it because hospital windows do not open. It's just like hotel windows. They only open up like a quarter of an inch. Um, And he walked out of the room in his head. uh, He... He was thinking about jumping. And so that runs into the magical realism at that point that he sees her going to the window, not seeing him looking up and him flying because that's what he thinks he's doing. But in reality, he's blacked out walking through the hospital hallways. I could dig that. I could get behind that. That's a, I mean, it, it feels more in line with, you know, the rules of the, the universe prior to that point. Yeah. Um, yeah. So you make a really good point in, in doing that. So I'm, I'm going to side with Ryan on this one. Take back my answer. (laughs) Man, yeah. Well, because, I mean, even if you look at the steps leading up to it, he takes off the bandages that look like a bird mask, and you find the bruised, broken person underneath. And then maybe that's just symbolizing the rest of the world seeing who he is now or seeing the new version of him. Yeah. Dang. Good job, Ryan. (laughs) Yeah, I I think that's it. But the one that I looked on IMDb in the – frequently asked questions section and they have nine options that you can use from <laughs> oh my gosh uh, so it's kind of like your favorite call all over again it's, my, it's whatever you favorite, want it's whatever. <laughs> my favorite is sam doesn't know where her father went but she sees the meteor-like object in the sky and it fills her with awe like that's what she's looking up at is the meteor i never would have thought about that but that does film. come up doesn't it yeah huh oh they're all gonna that's die that's an interesting take yeah she's happy <laughs> She's your typical millennial. She's typical. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. I, I also like the theory that he, the whole thing's a dream and he killed himself on a beach. And that's why you see the, the symbols of the, uh, the, the jellyfish. jellyfish and the meteor. 
Well, the whole thing's just a, a dream of... He does say that he tries to drown himself. Yeah. Wow, that's interesting. Yeah. I want to go watch the movie again. I'm going to be honest. <laughs> we're, like on, we're like on a run of films with open-ended interpretations for at the end. Yeah. I mean, but those are what Our make last... the best kind of movies, though, are yeah. movies that you can conversate and really dig into deep with its themes and its theories. Yeah. Last week we did uh, Total, Total Recall. So. And we ended up finding out that the actual director said that it's whatever you want the ending to be. <laughs> Pretty <Yeah>. much. <laughs> So did director of this one come out and say anything about the ending or was it just like just the same? Like it's. I didn't dive that that far into it, Um, but part of me really likes that. I like art as being interpretive and I like it being personal to you and how you want that movie to end is how that movie ends, because it means something to you. And I think that's more important than someone coming out and going, yeah, the top fell over. It was a dream. (laughs) And I, I feel like that that is the hallmark of a of great filmmaking right so you want mm-hmm. films that aren't necessarily going to cookie cut what the ending should be it should be open for your interpretation because again that goes back to at the end of the day whether a film is good or it's bad it is art it is mm-hmm. subject to it and you know two great examples of that are Tommy Wiseau's The Room you know yes. some people absolutely love that movie and some people look at this and say this is absolute garbage you know? <laughs> and even the to bring it back once again to hbo's watchmen the ending to that show the very last shot boom mike yeah. dropped yeah. that mm-hmm. brian are you the only one here who hasn't watched watchmen i'm the only one that hasn't seen it oh no oh it's so good it's fine it's fine um <laughs> But it's yeah, not. No, it's not. I, I understand. <laughs> I understand. I was going to get that statement from uh, from one of you. But when it comes to films like that, like I always like to stick within the rules of what I, I see. <laughs> um, I like to stick within the rules of the world that they build when it comes to stuff like this. Case in point, mm-hmm. I hate, hate the live action Ninja Turtle movie number three, Turtles in Time. I absolutely hate that film because it does not stick with the world that they built in the first two films. Granted, yes, mutated turtles. Perfect. Good. I got it. A talking rat. Good. Got it. You've got all of this stuff that's based around a lab and radioactive material that makes things mutate. That's perfect. That's good. You've got the rest of the world is completely realistic. Late 1980s. Good. This totally makes sense. Third movie. They hit you in the face with a wormhole. What the hell? <laughs> At least they never. Why does this face. movie keep coming up? This is the third week in a row that this movie has. Can come we up. just do this movie? I haven't seen it. We're going to have to. So to me, I always like sticking within the rules that they build. And so when it comes to like movies, like the room and stuff like that, I would, I would latch on to whatever rules and whatever schemes they show to like to to like to start with. That's what I'm sticking with. And that's why, you know, my thing, like as soon as I saw him open up the window in uh, in his room, I was like, "Ah, no, fantasy, because I've been in enough hospital rooms where, no, you cannot open up a window in a hospital room. (laughs) But anyway, I digress. That's a good take, though, because I didn't know that. I really didn't. 
Yeah. I, in fact, I, I, if, I, if I'm uh, at the Children's Hospital uh, in Philadelphia and and in the Children's Hospital of St. Louis, those windows don't open. Period. Wow. So I I wonder how much of that is also suspension of disbelief. Like how much they just like okay, the window opens. Like it's not actually going to if it was an actual hotel, uh, an actual hospital room, but. For the story, we're just going to have it open. True, and, and that could be the case. But with how detailed this film was with every other aspect of it, especially in the magical parts, with him, I mean, with him landing and then having the cabbie run in after him, if they're going to be that realistic about how, like, the light fixture hits the guy and when they go up into the rafters before, you know, uh, was it um, uh, his daughter and the other actor... Uh, before they start making out like the entire set, except for his little, you know, being able to point things and make them fly across the room. Um, everything else is based in total realism. So to me, like, I'm sure there was enough people working on this film where they were like, you can't do that with a hospital window. Like, you, 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 so, I mean, but, but, but that's how I took it, you know? Mm. And there's nine answers on IMDb about how this movie ended. So I, I feel yeah. pretty safe that I can say that for myself and it'd be okay. <laughs> Again, I feel like it comes back to the art aspect yes. in, in that realm as well, is that it's meant to be subjective. And this film is very deep. Like, I, I feel like we've probably only grazed the surface of really what this film is saying and what the what each actor is arc is is saying throughout the course of this film as well and you know again great hallmarks of of filmmaking Mm -hmm. any other final thoughts on birdman before we wrap this thing up i'm gonna go watch it again tonight that's it oh really i watched it this morning i'm gonna watch it again tonight i'm debating if i want to do i wanted to watch it at work today it just didn't work out for me i would also encourage listeners that if they haven't seen it to watch it on the biggest screen possible um because the not not an airplane not an airplane definitely not (laughs) (laughs) because the just the fluidity of the camera and the soundtrack for this film are just amazing and they just need to be experienced in the biggest format possible yeah, there, there's certain films that are just better on a bigger screen. Yep. I, I remember a few years ago um, when Dunkirk came out, I, I'm part of this this film set meme group, and the the meme that kept going around was people watching Dunkirk on the smallest screen possible. <laughs> so it's like people watching Dunkirk on their Apple Watch. <laughs> <laughs> With the caption, the way Nolan intended. <laughs> so I, I think that's like part of the reason he's doubling down. Like, oh yes, Tenet will be in theaters. We're not releasing it to video on demand. It is going through theaters in July. Watch me. <laughs> I'm hoping it, man. I'll be there opening night with bells and whistles. Oh yeah. News is today that uh, AMC will be opening. Good. So. I was worried about them. They're 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 ter- they're determined. Good. So it's going to be All interesting. Right. <laughs> so that pretty much does it for this episode. Josh, where can people find victims and villains? So we are on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and Letterbox at victims and villains. Uh, victimsandvillains.net is our website where you guys can find 
all the links to the social medias, all of our reviews, including some done by Alan, upcoming events, past episodes, and most importantly, suicide prevention resources. And we're also on anywhere you guys find your podcasts. And if you want to find us on social media, we are at You Have to Watch This Podcast at on Instagram and on Facebook. Uh, you can email us at You Have to Watch This Podcast at gmail.com. As always, uh, go ahead and uh, leave a comment wherever you're listening to the podcast. Rate, rate the podcast for us. We appreciate it. We get a kick out of reading them. Um, but I think that does it for this week. Um, for You Have to Watch This Podcast, I'm Alan. I'm Ryan. And I'm Devin. And Josh, thanks for coming. And we'll see everyone next week. Mm-hmm.